Welcome to the Pitbox Podcast. I'm John Satori. This week on the podcast, taking a look at round 11 in Turkey in just a moment. First time we've been there since 2011 uh, when we were running V8s. And actually, one man on the current grid has driven a V10 around here as well. Just the one. No great surprise, I suppose, if you think about it, who it is. Uh, We're going to be getting some inside info also from someone who works inside McLaren Mission Control on race weekends. Her name is Matilda McAleenan. She's a materials engineer at McLaren. Uh, We're going to find out how she got there, uh, what's her role within the team, and how Mission Control operates on the weekend as well. Uh, One of the many talented women working at McLaren these days. Uh, plus, we've got James Underhay and Wayne Sullivan on. We're going to cover the latest stories out of F1 over the last seven days. The Grosjean radio story, uh, Max's comments about Lewis Hamilton, 90% of the field could win in his car. We'll be taking a look at that as well. It's around 14 this weekend. Turkish Grand Prix has returned to the calendar for this year only. First time since 2011. Much anticipated by the drivers as well, particularly Turn 8. It's that quadruple apex left-hander. And in this year's cars, that's looking to be pretty flat out. Even uh, Felipe Massa, who's won here three times, pole position, in fact. He's won from pole position three times, driving for Ferrari back in the day. Uh, He was saying that as well on the uh, Formula One podcast. An incredible experience for the drivers. Turn 8 spectators, it's going to be great seeing the onboards of that, particularly when early in the weekend there's not going to be too much grip. Remember, this has only recently been re-asphalted, so there's not going to be much grip on Friday. That will make Turn 8 even more interesting. Really looking forward to seeing those onboards, who gets it right, who gets it wrong. But, you know, they're pretty much um, flat. Uh, sorry, straight lining, aren't they, through those uh, those four apexes of the left-hander at Turn 8. Uh, and don't forget also, um, before I go any further, there's earlier start times to the sessions. And, of course, on Sunday, uh, Saturday, rather, the quality is at 12 o'clock. The race is at 10 past 10 in the morning because of that time difference to Istanbul. Uh, last time in uh, 2011, record number of pit stops, 82. Overtakes, 79. I'd like to see that happen again. Let's hope it does. Uh, we know that Pirelli are bringing the hardest compound tyres here. That makes sense. See, one, two, and three. No great surprise given the lack of relevant data. We haven't raced here for nine years. And also the stresses that Turn 8 is going to put on that front right-hand cor- uh, front right-hand tyre. They'll get seven sets of the uh, soft, three sets of the medium, three sets of the hard. Normally it would be an 8-3-2 split, but that's not the case for this year. It's all changed. Um, and as I say, that new asphalt, it's, um, <laughs> the, the, the grip levels are going to be pretty low, aren't they? Rather, almost zero from the start of the weekend. Pretty dusty on Friday, but uh, across the weekend. Now, green is a, a green thing from Greenville, although once it does start to grip up, that, that grip will sort of ramp up quite quickly once it does start to, to poke its head through the surface, so to speak. A mix of low and high-speed corners, though this year, or with this year's cars at least, some of those... Lower speed corners are really almost medium speed, really. So that midfield battle is going to be really quite tight if it's not tight enough already. McLaren should be more competitive here because their car does tend to like those fast to medium uh, corners. And Renault, again, you know, they are very good uh, in a straight line, a a lower downforce um, uh, spec car is going to suit them. And of course, uh, the pink Mercedes of Racing Point, I don't think any of those cars will be mixing it too much with the Red Bulls. Although, you know, they're not as quick in a straight line, particularly with the the Honda engine, even though it's, you know, not far off parity these days. 
But uh, maybe they'll come back a little bit, but, you know, out the front, Mercedes are, are still looking untouchable. But, uh, you know, it should be an interesting weekend. We'll see what happens um, on Friday and see what those uh, long-run times are as far as race pace is concerned. Uh, Philip, uh, sorry, Felipe Massa won here. He's won the race more than anybody else, three times from pole position. In fact, five times the pole sitter has won at Turkey. Not a great stat as far as uh, hoping for an exciting race is concerned. But then again, at the moment, it doesn't really make much difference. The Mercedes is dominant, isn't it? Um, so it's really what happens behind uh, the two Mercs and, and one Red Bull that's more interesting at the moment. Vettel was the last winner here back in 2011. Of course, it's the, the scene of the famous Vettel-Weber clash in 2010. Weber started from pole that day. It was the the weekend where he really felt that it all gone south for him with Red Bull. He wrote a, a letter to Dina Maitschitz afterwards because of the, the clash that happened between himself and Sebastian Vettel. I remember you know, Vettel putting his hand up against his temple and doing the crazy sign, the loco sign, um, after they'd had that accident, and Vettel had to retire from the race. But um, Mark Webber, in his book, if you've uh, had a chance to read that, and, and I haven't, but I, from what I've heard, that was this race, in that book he says it was at this race that he started to get the feeling that it wasn't just um, Dr. Helmut Marko that he was up against. It became Christian Horner as well. And so he went direct to Dieter Machitz. Um And, uh, of course, nothing really changed, did it? And um, after that, well, fate accompli as far as being able to win a championship with Red Bull. Uh, last um, fastest lap here in 2011 was Mark Webber. A 129.703. You'd imagine that that's going to be uh, broken. But the fastest lap here is actually from 2005, Juan Pablo Montoya in a McLaren 124.770. So expect that to be broken. And it's incredible when you look at the difference. It's five seconds difference between 2011 and 2005. And then you start to add this year's cars into that mix. And you think, wow, Um, 70% flat out through the lap. Uh, Quick pit stops here too, 17 seconds. So it should be a rather exciting race. Um, but uh, yeah, this weekend, Turkey, it is round 14. Of course, there's just three rounds to go. Uh, the new calendar has been announced. I'm going to be talking uh, to James Underhay and Wayne Sullivan about that and also a few of the other topics that are coming up uh, or that have uh, sort of poked their heads through in the last uh, seven or so days since we were racing at uh, Imola. And that's still to come on the Pitbox podcast. Joined by Wayne Sullivan and James Underhay. Uh, thanks for joining us, guys. Been an interesting week so far, um, and I thought I'd get both of you on to get your opinions on the various topics that we've uh, are we going to cover because there's there's been a few things happening. Um, the first one, I think, and maybe the controversial one is what Max Verstappen has said with regard to uh, Lewis Hamilton and the Mercedes that he drives, saying that uh, well, you know. Um, 90% of the field could win in that car. Nothing against Lewis. He's a great driver. Now, Wayne, you obviously, I know that you're a, a fan of Lewis. Do you think that's a fair comment? Because one, you know, there's been a, a few people in the past and in, in certainly the last 12 months who question whether or not that is actually a fair comment and they cop a lot of a lot of grief about it. What, what are your thoughts on it? Um, well, I think this is this sort of first popped up around about six or seven weeks ago, I think. So it's obviously something that Max has either reiterated or, or an outlet has republished. But, I mean, if if 90% of the field would win in that car, then why aren't Mercedes finishing 1-2 every race? Um, I think 
with Lewis, they've got obviously an incredibly strong driver. You know, he's won 93 races. He's about to win his seventh world championship. Um, who knows the car inside out and who applies himself incredibly well to be able to make that car perform as well as it does. So, you know, obviously, I think Max would win in it um, quite easily, maybe as easily as Lewis, maybe with a little bit more of a struggle, maybe Leclerc. Um, but I think you go a little bit further than that. And the, you need to be a proven race winner to win a race in a car like that. And I don't think there are that many people on the on the grid that would be able to do it as well as Lewis is doing it. But Charles Leclerc? Yeah, Chuck Leclerc. <laughs> yeah, Chuck Leclerc. But he, I, you know, I, I, the thing is that what I um, struggle a bit with is that I, I mean, I, I, it's it's definitely the most dominant car, and this all gets back to the whole argument of who is the goat, who is the greatest of all time, and the mm-hmm. argument is that well, you know, Lewis has been in a dominant car, no one for a long, you know, for a good three years there, there was not a lot of development. Uh, you know, there was too many restrictions with regards to what you could do with the engine, and and then Mercedes had such a, a march on that that you yeah. could say that two of those championships, you know, were never going to be any different because no one else could no. get could get up to speed. And I think that's the argument I sort of look at it and think, yeah, you know, he's in the best car, he should be winning. But what I don't agree with is that it's almost like drivers and everybody. Um, they're not allowed to say that, or if they do say it, they get shouted down real quickly. But it's still, I think, reasonably a true statement. Um, I think, uh, go on, yeah, sorry, Jake. Yeah, no, I, I just think uh, we'll obviously, you know, come on to the whole radio chatter thing, which we're going to come on to shortly, John, in, in terms of what drivers can and can't say. And I think you're right to a certain extent. Drivers need to have an opinion on this sort of stuff. They can't be beaten down every time they say something because eventually they'll just stop talking. Um, I'm for what it's worth, a sort of similar opinion to Wayne on this in terms of the car itself. Of course, look, if someone's going to be given an opportunity in a car that's going to be potentially able to out-qualify another car by a second in some situations, then obviously it's going to give them a better chance to win races. But Valtteri's had exactly the same opportunity here as Lewis in terms of what that car can do potentially, what car is put in front of him for him to get into and drive on a Saturday and a Sunday. And He's been comprehensively battered by Lewis, as we've talked about so many times recently as a result. Um, but it's only I been that it, one driver, though, has it? You know what I mean? Is that you haven't got more than one driver who's yeah, really being able to take, take it to Lewis because no other car is anywhere near as good as that Mercedes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I understand where you're coming from. I think, though, you know, if you put... Yeah, there are going to be other drivers on the grid, ultimately, that could pick up wins, I think, if they're in that Merc. But a lot of it would come down to whether Lewis was their teammate at the same time or not. Because I think that... As Wayne alluded to, he has that ability to go that bit farther, find a bit more and manage his drives in such a way that ultimately he's risen to the point where he's mastered both the car itself and also pretty much any of his competition. So you're, you're looking at a situation here where it's not the perfect storm. You've got Lewis, who is undeniably absolutely brilliant and able to draw that performance or the maximum performance from the car because if everyone was able to do it Valtteri would be doing it and they'd be on a much more of an even kill but that's just not the case is it no but the other thing is that uh, sorry and, and getting back to what I was talking about originally is that we had Lando Norris and this is only my opinion but Lando Norris came out and made sort of a, a comment after was it um, the Imola or the race before that about 
Lewis, oh yeah, you know, he should be able to win in that car. He should be able to win most of the races. And then all of a sudden he had that retraction of that statement. And I think, mm. I, I don't like that. It's like, yeah, of course, why can't a driver say something like that? It's obviously what he feels and he now feels guilty for saying it or he's been advised to withdraw the statement because it's too controversial. But I don't think it's a controversial statement. No, I don't think it's a controversial statement. I, I think it was quite a contrived response as well in terms of having to withdraw it. I thought it was a bit sad, really, the way he had to uh, apologise. But, um, you know, it's um, it's a tricky situation. The drivers are all going to be feeling that if they had that chance, if they were sat in that car, they'd be winning tons of races and potentially championships. Um, and after a while, it probably gets pretty boring for them to know, uh, you know, in, in Max's situation, for example, that the best he's going to be able to do this year is third unless Valtteri has an absolute meltdown and, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and gets caught by him. But that's very unlikely to happen, as we know. So I, I kind of understand from the other driver's point of view the frustrations involved because um, it, it must be pretty annoying, as I said, watching Lewis drive off into the sunset every weekend. Yeah. No, well, I, I just want to sort of like touch on that Lando point about, um, you know, issuing the retraction and the apology. I think what most of the... Lewis fans, because it wasn't really that you know a generic F1 fan that was jumping on on Lando for that comment. I think it was mostly Lewis specific fans. I think they were just a little bit jaded that he didn't you know congratulate his fellow countrymen on breaking the record of winning the most races. Um, and then I think that that sort of goes into something. I know we're going to touch on Grosjean a little bit later, but Grosjean came out the other day and said that um, George Russell was the only other driver that had texted him. Mm. about you know sorry to see you leaving the sport and this that and the other um and at the end of the day i think you don't want all of the drivers to be good mates because then the competition loses its edge so i don't disagree with lando for saying what he said um and i was a little bit not upset but you know miffed that he issued an apology because he was just speaking his mind um and like you said you know is it going to come to the point where the drivers don't speak their mind because Mm -hmm. they are afraid of the backlash yeah, and it just becomes sanitized. It, it, it's it becomes like what happens in in football or rugby union. You get the you know yeah the boys played really well in the first half. It's you know <laughs> your you stock standard responses every yeah. time because they're too afraid to say what they really feel. Um, yeah. And and look, I you know and let's you know Max Verstappen has been in the spotlight recently because of some of the things he said over the radio, and particularly, and we'll shortly get to the whole Grosjean radio thing. Um, and and obviously what he said in those moments, I completely disagree with. You know, yeah. those statements were just crazily stupid, rude, you know, insensitive. You don't say that even over the radio. Uh, no, I think it's it's when it's when it becomes offensive. Yeah, that actually, you know, look, uh, you, the, the whole the whole thing about this, the radio conversations that he he you know got himself into over the stroll incident was. We, we understand that there's heat at the moment. This is a pretty serious situation that the guys are putting themselves in every time they step in the car. And if someone else is going to put you in a position where it either endangers you or flat ruins your race, it could be as simple as that. You know, where so much is on the line, then I feel that, you know, you're pretty entitled to have a fairly strong opinion on that. And if that's how it comes across on the radio, that's fine. But, but a general uh, swear word or calling him a something, but, yeah. not, but not an offensive... Of Word, course, you know, it, and, yeah. and that was the difference, wasn't it? Yeah, well, absolutely. It's, it becomes political as well when uh, governments start getting involved and asking for people to make apologies and stuff. You know, I think uh, Land again going back to Lando. I think Lando's response to Stroll was a lot fairer hmm. um, in terms. It was even brilliant, though it was, even though it was a lot more, um, uh, you know, swear word laden. 
um, that did actually that people don't look at the connotations of that accident enough because Racing Point are fighting with McLaren for third in the constructors. Um, Lando was on, you know, for some decent points. Uh, Lance was struggling in that race. He was struggling all weekend. Um, and then in the heat of the moment, you've got Lance taking Lando out of the points. You know, he's ruined his own race as well. Um, so now that's the McLaren that's sort of been on the back foot the last few races, then not scoring any points. Um, and I think it just came out with the, you know, the swear words and then the insult, which I think, yeah, it was all right. It's a pretty nasty insult at the end of the day, but it's not like, you know, the, it's not, um, in, it's not insulting another group of people or another. No. Yeah. You know what I mean? There is that difference, isn't there? I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, exactly. You know, and it was just the heat of the moment. Um, whereas I think what Max said, it came out a little bit too easily for my liking. Yeah, and yeah, and, and and that's just insensitive. It's a, it's a silly thing to say. It's it's something that you might have said when you were six back in the seventies because it wasn't you know it wasn't seen. And even then, my mother would have picked me up for saying something along those lines. You know, yeah, if I'd said exactly. something, you know what I mean. And, and any mother would have. And you can't now think, okay, that's okay to say. It's 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 not. But what Lando's response was, you know, it was swearing. Ah, oh, he's a you know bleep, bleeping idiot. Well, fine. And that's you you want. To still hear that passion and 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 know that they're sort of having those sort of feelings when there's something that really upsets them. Um, now, so yeah. you know, and look, it, it brings us on to the whole: do should those sort of messages be broadcast? Because let's get onto it. Grosjean is saying, "Why was it broadcast?" Which is the the Max Verstappen comment. Do you think we should have a, a clampdown, or there shouldn't be drivers' radio being heard over broadcasts, or? Is that part of F1? Mm, I, th- I think, you know, I think you, it sets a dangerous precedent if you start winding that sort of stuff in because, you know, the, the comment was outrageous. It was very discriminatory. I think that was really the the real problem with Max's comment, wasn't it? Because there's a difference between swearing at someone and calling them an idiot or mm-hmm. actually going down a discrimination kind of route, which is yeah. in this day and age just doesn't wash right. And what I mentioned earlier on in terms of the, the, these guys, this is an unbelievably dangerous sport. People forget that because, okay, as awful as it is, obviously people are, you know, have, we have lost people, Jules Bianchi obviously being a case in point in, in the not too distant past, but it is quite rare really for a, an F1 driver to be, you know, badly injured now yep. to the point where they can't get back in the car or they're incapacitated or something, or, you know, God forbid, even worse than that. So I think people often forget what these guys are doing there is still massive risk these cars are not easy to drive and they're quite frankly superhuman to be able to get in and do 70 80 laps um you know at the speeds at the g's all of that sort of stuff and not stick a car on the wall and even if they do they're going to be able to get out of it so that element is always going to be in the driver's minds because they know what they're doing when they get into the car um and therefore as i mentioned earlier if you have someone that that pulls some stupid stunt and and in Stroll's case, you know, it wasn't like he didn't have previous from that weekend because of the Max incident when he hit Lando. You know, it's going to invoke that sort of reaction. And they're all big boys at the end of the day, right? You know, this isn't a situation where it's not a question of name calling or, oh, I'm upset because he called me X, Y, or Z. This is serious stuff. And it's not just about the performance aspect, which Wayne rightly pointed uh, pointed out. It is about the fact that these guys are out there to to do a job but not have some absolute moron (laughs) 
cause a, cause a problem. And, you know, it, it's got to be... Look, the, the Drive to Survive uh, series that came out on Netflix, the reason that that was so popular for me, and I think a lot of other people, is it, it kind of heralded a new era in terms of what motorsport is for the fans. Because go to watch an F1 race now. I don't know, Wayne, how regular or when you've last gone to a race. I know, Jonathan, you've been to dozens, obviously. <laughs> the last race that I went to it felt, I felt really detached. You know, it, you're a mile away from the real action. You can't, you can't really feel what's going on. Okay. It's great when an F1 car goes past, but that, uh, Formula One doesn't really have that contact anymore. And the reason Drive to Survive was great was because it made people see what really goes on behind the scenes and kind of got them a bit more interested. Yeah. And we, as, as, um, as a group, I think the world is becoming a bit more kind of voyeuristic in terms of its media consumption, you know, and you mm. want to see that, that dirty stuff that goes on behind the scenes because most of my mates who aren't into Formula One have no interest in the sport because they think it's kind of a posh boy sport and they're all really polished and great behind the microphone, etc. And some of them, having seen a couple of episodes of Drive to Survive, are suddenly, suddenly going, actually, you know what, there's a bit more to this. Um, you know, the odd swear word you hear at a, a football match on Sky that they have to apologise for uh, on, on a Saturday that's picked up by one of the pitch side mics, etc. That, you don't hear that in Formula One normally. So, if you start to take that away when you do hear the odd bit of drama or a bit, a bit of excitement because someone's called someone else a so-and-so, I think you're diluting the sport again, which is at a time where it really needs to be brought to the, the fan, you know? Yeah, yeah no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, the drive to survive the behind the scenes aspect of it, 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 makes it, it makes the sport and the series seem like it's real again. Um, yeah. Like you said, you know, lots of people that, you know, think of it as a posh boy sport with really elite and it yeah. is elitist. Um, but it shows that behind the scenes, the drivers, the mechanics, the team bosses it, are humans. Um, and it's not some sort and they're not as media polished as they used to be. Um, you know, you used to have sort of Alonso giving the odd uh, interview 10, 15 years ago where he would speak his mind. But a lot of the. A lot of the drivers were quite media polished at the time. And there are some quite media savvy drivers now. Um, but I think the way the drivers interact with each other in the paddock, obviously not this season because they're all in their individual bubbles. Um, but I, I think it's good to see behind the scenes to show that it isn't this sanitized, media friendly area in the paddock. It is actually brutal. It's harsh and it's real. Absolutely. And, and so it's it's what really we want to see is we we still want to see and sorry we still want to hear the radio transmissions. I don't think there's anything wrong with it either. I completely agree. But what the drivers have to do is that you know there's nothing wrong with a few swear words and um you know that you know reaction to whatever's gone on on the circuit. But you've got to make sure that it's not personal. It's not yeah. Um, you know, it's not discriminatory anyway, and and that's the thing is, I I I completely agree. I think you know, you want to hear that passion of a driver going, "What the blinking hell did that?" Nothing wrong with that. I mean, and you consider what sort of language goes on on a football field, and mm -hmm. you know what a sort of abuse a referee cops in the Premier League or any football <laughs> league, you know, pales into comparison what you hear on what you potentially hear on if, if if all the radio channels were open, you could hear every announcement between driver and engineer. You'd still wouldn't hear anywhere near half as much, a quarter yeah. as much as what the, you'd hear in a you know in an EPL game. So that's I completely agree. It's just a matter of the drivers being a little bit more sensitive, and not all of them. I think most of them are pretty good. It's just Max's sort of stepped over the line there but it's probably a 
a, a nationality thing for him as well. Uh, with the Dutch being quite blunt, <laughs> they don't—they call a spade a spade. Um, yeah, and, you know, they uh, don't mince their words. And no, that's right. And I suppose that it's just that they need to understand. And Max needs to understand that's that's not acceptable um, at any level. But um, okay. And now the other big uh, thing that um, announcement, obviously, uh, that's just happened is the new calendar. Twenty-one races for two thousand and twenty-one. Starts off in Australia. No one thought that was going to happen. March 21st. Um, going to be interesting to see whether or not any uh, punters will be allowed in. I think Australia, the way they're handling it, probably will be able to have um, punters at the races, considering that there were people at um, the Rugby League State of Origin and, and the recent uh, Wallabies uh, All Blacks game. So I think they'll they'll have punters in there as long as they continue to keep their COVID numbers down. But there's a tr- two triple headers in there. And, of course, the other controversial one was Saudi Arabia. Um, thoughts on the the 2021 calendar, gentlemen? Hmm. <laughs> um, he wants to go it's in, first. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting. I counted. Uh, I don't know if I misheard you there, John. I counted about 23 races potentially. Oh, 23? Is it? I, I think so. There's one oh, TBC. There's one TBC. Uh, so to be confirmed in April. Um, not quite sure what that means. Whether they've got something lined up for that, oh, if someone yeah. knows, then, then do say. But. Um, the uh, the other ones, Zanvor, obviously in September. Um, that's a classic venue. I'm looking forward to that. It looks like they've got an incredible banked corner there as well. I think the cars are going to look pretty cool going through there. And then, as you mentioned, Saudi as well. Um, whew, uh, Saudi's a tricky one, isn't it? I think um, you know, trying to be diplomatic here. Saudi is a tricky one for many reasons. It is probably the most contentious of the new venues, and I think it just follows. Uh, I think it just follows a trend of these kind of big money deals where tracks are just being created like it's almost like a computer game. They're just dumping these mega venues in the middle of nowhere. Have you have you seen the circuit? Uh, I, yeah, I it looks pretty, pretty soulless. It looks terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look great. It doesn't look great. And let's bear in mind as well, these these kind of these new these modern new world circuits that were created were supposed to be supposed to be created with overtaking mind from a fresh, you know, blank sheet of paper with current regulations and the cars in mind. But they pretty much nine times out of ten they do turn into DRS bore fests, don't they? But Baku, I guess, is kind of a maybe maybe bucks that trend a little because it tends to throw up a pretty decent race, and maybe that's just because it's a pretty crazy venue. And I think it's know. just because that's a street circuit, you know. Yeah, it's tight racing, and you've got a mile and a half long straight. Yeah, um, I, th- I think, and because the straight is so long, obviously everybody runs quite low downforce, um, and because it's on a street circuit, it's dusty um, and it's very unforgiving. That's where the you know the safety car element comes into it. Yeah. Um, but no, talking about the the, the calendar, um, I I'm sad to see that they haven't included Mugello or yeah. Portimao. Um, you know, go, go back to your point, James, about the the newer tracks being very uh, DRS Borefest and Solus. All you've got to do is look at Mugello and Portimao. Um, great circuits, elevation change, sweeping corners. Yeah. long straight fast corners leading onto the straight which completely bucks the tilka trend of yeah. having a tight corner leading onto a straight to bunch the field up um and we saw great racing at both at both venues um but i think the tbc in april is because vietnam got pulled from the calendar yeah yeah um 
I'm not entirely sure what happened there. I it was a government, government thing, apparently, yeah. Yeah, some improprieties, um, which they were very quickly to point out about that it was not concerning the Grand Prix, which makes me immediately think that it was regarding the Grand Prix. Um, <laughs> but it's a, you know, it's a shame that that is when it is. Um, I hope they can maybe fit Malaysia in there if they can get um, Sepang up and running again, because if it's a TBC in April, you don't want the teams to have to come back to Europe when they're in, in the middle of, you know, the Far East flyaway races. Mm. Um, logistically, it's a nightmare. Um, and I would love to see F1 go back to Sepang, especially in these cars. It would be so fast. It would be unbelievably amazing. Yeah. Always, produ- always produced a great race Sepang as well, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't. I can really. I can probably only remember one, maybe two poor races at Sepang. The, the rest of them have been, you know, really good entertainment. I mean, the thing is that I think you'd find a lot of the mechanics and engineers, considering what's going to happen with twenty-three races and you know a trip, uh, two triple headers in there. I think they'd be quite happy to have nothing happening on the twenty-fifth of April, <laughs> um, uh, because it is. I mean, it's you know it's now finishing on the fifth of December. It's funny, you know, starting probably a week later on the twenty-first of March. It normally it's about yeah. the fourteenth or fifteenth, so it's it's one week later. And um, but it's like that's a gruesome. Uh, uh, sorry, gruesome. That's a, a grueling calendar um to have for these guys and girls considering what they've gone through this year and considering that in 2018 when we had triple headers they were told yeah that's not going to happen again it's 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 just too much and now they've got two in a 23 race calendar like what's the uh what's the first one because i know the last triple header is the last three races of the season though uh it is spa Zandvoort, Monza, and then there's a week break, and then it's Russia, Singapore, and Japan, and that's yeah, what six weeks? Uh, sorry, six races in eight weeks, guys. Yeah, I mean that's that's carnage. I, I really feel for all of the team members there because you're not going to have a chance to come back home after Italy, I guess. Well, you know, COVID depending um, whether people need to isolate or quarantine when they get into another country, but yeah, because know, it's not it's not a, it's not a short flight from even Italy across to Russia, is it? I mean, you're still looking at a good four hours. Yeah, that's... I mean, as much as I would love to work in Formula One, um, that would put me off immediately. Well, if you've got family in that situation, you know, do you ever ever see your family during the season? I mean, John, obviously, you've got, uh, uh, you know, a little girl, and and during that period of time, I'm not sure, um, you know, whether you had her during your real busy period of travel, but... It must be no. pretty tough. The, the worst I had was, you know, a, a double header. Um, but, you know, there's guys like, you know, I know one of the mechanics in McLaren, Mark Cox, and he's got twins and, you know, he's at every race. I mean, I was lucky. I didn't go to every race. You know, if there was 20 on the calendar, I'd probably go to 13, maybe 14. So it wasn't as bad for me. But, you yeah. know, those uh, th- those team members who've got families, um, yeah, they don't, they don't see them. It's incredibly tough. And I've actually yeah. said to Coxie, I said, I don't know how you do it. Um, you know, you got to really love the job because that's a lot of time away from uh, from a young family. And you know, and when they get back, it's not like they're spending a lot of time back at home as well. A lot of the time, they're back into the factory, or you know, they're off doing something else. Or not off doing something, but you know, they they don't get the time off to do anything else. It's back to the factory and a couple of days off with the family, and then they're back out onto the road again. You know, it's a cool I mean, road. outside of the the obvious effect that the teams, you know, that like we we're just talking about the team members going through, do we think that 
a 23 race calendar is just simply too many yeah yeah absolutely yeah it's, it's i i just don't i mean i can, i i can only assume that they they need the money because they have made probably and i'm talking about formula one here in liberty they haven't made great um uh, you know, uh, gains on getting their money back from the price that they paid for Bernie a few years ago. Yeah. And, you know, from particularly because of what's happened this year. But 23 races in that amount of time is, that's uh, pretty pretty ordinary, I think. But anyway. Yeah, mm. I, I think I saw um, it is 12 races in 17 weeks prior to the summer break. And then, 11 races in 15 weeks after the summer break yeah and it, it's like you said you know about mark cox um i see i follow him on on twitter and i i see you know his posts about his family and stuff and having twins uh you know just school starting age it, mm. I, I can't imagine it you know it's all i'm saying is thank god for facetime and skype because mm. how else would they be able to see their dad Yep, exactly right. It's um, a tough old game at the moment. All right, gentlemen, we uh, better wrap it up there, but uh, thank you very much for your time once again, and we'll uh, definitely do that. Uh, do this again at some point. Thanks, Great stuff. John. Thanks, John. I'm joined now by McLaren materials engineer Matilda McAleen, and boy, there's a lot of M's in there. Tell me you're from Morton in the Marsh. <laughs> Unfortunately not, but I was born in Milan in Italy, so maybe we can take that one. <laughs> there we go. I just all of a sudden thought, there's a lot of M's in there. Um, look, welcome and thanks very much uh, for joining us on the podcast. Now, you're with McLaren. First of all, how long have you been with McLaren? Um, so I'm actually just approaching my five-year anniversary. I started in November 2015. Um and yeah, so coming up to my five-year anniversary, it doesn't feel like that long, but um, I'm sure I've learned a lot along the way. <laughs> that means you're having fun as well. Um, so how did you, what was your pathway to the team or into F1? So, I mean, I've always been a fan of F1, but I didn't necessarily set out to work in Formula One. And when I was at school, I was interested in lots of different subjects and I tried to keep all the subjects I was interested in going for as long as I possibly could. So even when I was doing my A-levels, I did maths and further maths. I did physics and chemistry, and I also did Italian and French. And I was really interested in doing languages. And when I was going to university, I did consider them. But I thought, you know, I can't keep up a science in the background, whereas I can keep up a la language in the background and I can use it when I go on holiday. Yeah. So I decided not to pursue the languages as a degree. And I'd done maths and further maths because I knew that if I wanted to do anything particularly technical or scientific, I'd really need those two subjects. And my maths teacher had been bugging me for ages at school about how I definitely wanted to do physical natural sciences, which is basically a combination of lots of different subjects and you can tailor your degree to suit you. So I was doing physics, maths, chemistry, for my first three years and I had an introduction to materials so when I was working out what to study at university I did think maybe I want to do materials um I'd ruptured my cruciate ligament when I was 16 oh. and I was playing yeah I was playing hockey at quite a high level and I ruptured it playing hockey and it really emotionally that was a difficult time for me um so I thought 
you know, I want to be that person that comes up with a replacement ligament. I want to be that person that discovers that new material. Uh, so I'd always been interested in doing biomedical materials and I thought I'm going to do that at university and then when I was in the process of applying I had these second thoughts like I've never learned anything about materials because it's not an A-level option it's not something you study at school so you don't have much exposure to it so then I looked up physical and natural sciences which is something that my teacher had been telling me I'd be really interested in for so long and I was so sure he was wrong <laughs> but then when I looked it up and went to the open day he was really really like bang on he knew what he was talking about the fact that I could continue doing a wide range of subjects for three years and then only specialize later that was something that you know really connected with me um and yeah so I got an introduction to materials in my first year because you choose four subjects and um the first lecture basically said materials bridges the gap between the small of physics and chemistry and the large scale of engineering. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be able to apply my physics and chemistry knowledge and not just sit there studying atoms and all these fantastic things that they do, but it doesn't feel very real to me. Yeah. So yeah, I continued doing materials. And one of the things that you had to do between your third and fourth year was a placement. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get two placements. One of them was at ProDrive. Oh, yeah. And the other one, yeah. And I had some connections there um, through other activities, but um, it all worked out very well. Um, and then the other one was at McLaren Racing. And the way I got the one at McLaren Racing was um, because I was interested in Formula One. A friend of mine said, oh, they're coming to give a careers talk. You should just come along. And it wasn't at the materials department, which is why I didn't know about it in terms of direct communication. And I went along and I just said, surely you have a materials group? And they were like, yes. So they gave me contact details and I just asked. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so that's how I got my placement and that's how I got my connections. And then when I graduated and I was looking for a job, I thought, you know what, I might as well just ask again, because if you don't ask, you don't get. Yep. And I had nothing to lose. Uh, so I asked the person who is my current line manager if there was a job going, because when I'd done my placement, he was looking for a fourth engineer. He was looking for funding for a fourth engineer. So I wondered if he'd perhaps been given that funding. And unfortunately, he said no. So I went off, looked for other jobs, and I was about to accept a job somewhere else, much further away from me from home, not necessarily something that I definitely wanted to do, but you know, you need to get a job and at least get some experience. Mm. And I was about to accept it, and I was playing tennis with my big brother, and my phone rang, and you know, I was 21, 22, my phone never rang. So I thought, I better, I better answer this. Uh, I answered it and it was my line manager asking if I was still looking for a job because one of the people in the group was leaving. Brilliant. So, yeah, it was just all about being in the right place at the right time and luck playing a large part. It, uh, it's amazing. It's uh, what life is about in a lot of ways, isn't it? And, and, and just being persistent as well. Um so you're working now. I mean, I've I've seen you out at uh, out at races, uh, camera in hand, and obviously you're involved with the reliability of the car. And 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 if there's any sort of failures, then you need to sort of document that and look into that and report back, don't you? 
Yeah, so a couple of years ago, we set up the reliability group. We didn't really have a focus set of people fo- like just looking at the reliability. Um, so the way that the reliability team works is there's one engineer from each design group. And they weren't actually looking for somebody from the materials group. But it was something I was really keen to get involved with. Um, I've always been interested in looking at other areas of the company. And it meant that I would get an opportunity to go to the track, um, which obviously is what Formula One is all about. Yep. Um, so even if I don't do it long term, it was something I definitely wanted to experience. And I thought I might as well just say I'd really like to be part of this reliability group. So again, I just put myself forward. Um, and yeah, they were really enthusiastic actually about having somebody from the materials group, because as you say, every time something fails on the car, we look at it and we try and understand why it's failed. And we do a lot of root cause analysis just to try and determine what the situation was that led to that failure and what we can do to avoid it in the future. So Failures themselves aren't always bad. Um, sometimes, you know, we have failures downstairs in VT testing, and that's when we're doing um, proof testing, for example, to sign off components like wishbones. Mm-hmm. If those fail, sometimes it means that, you know, you know you're going racy with your design, and that could be a good thing. Uh, so you can just beef it up a little bit. Um, but, yeah, failures on the track. If we see two failures of the same type, that means we've not done our job properly because we should be making recommendations to avoid having a repeat failure um but yeah it's 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 a hard thing to to really think about mentally because part of me is like obviously we want to do as well as we can so we want to finish every race and we want to make sure that the car is as reliable as possible and then sometimes when there's a gearbox failure on a weekend that's actually a really exciting moment for me because yeah we don't we don't finish the race we don't get any points and that's always tragic you don't want to be saying that too loud do no, I know, but it's keeping me in a job um, <laughs> um, yeah so i know that on monday morning picking through the evidence is going to be super fun um it's a, it's always a massive challenge with gearbox failures actually because obviously you don't just stop immediately you keep running for a little bit so all the original evidence is quite damaged by the time we get it it's Um, it's a bit csi really isn't it it's forensic you know yeah we do a lot of forensic work and it's it's probably what we do most in our job it's not necessarily our our main role like our main role is to make sure that the car is as reliable and as performant as possible before it gets to the track so we should be making sure that these failures don't happen um so yeah that's that's not necessarily our main role but it probably takes up 60 to 70 percent of our time is just failure analysis um and I I don't mind it some people think it's it's quite negative but at the same time it's very positive Positive, yeah you're making making these recommendations to avoid it happening again in the future it's it's really fun kind of investigations that you can really dig into and um, get to the bottom of problems um, and the nice thing about it is it means that I work across all the areas of the car. So that's nice in a social aspect because I talk to lots of different designers, but it's also nice in terms of a materials aspect because you're working on lots of different, different. materials. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it doesn't get too, what well, you're not bogged down with one end of the car, like just on the gearbox or exactly. because it's, I mean, like the mechanics would be very much like that. They're sort of very much got one end of the car. They've got a, their gearbox mechanic, they're a front end mechanic and that's all they deal with. 
Yeah, and I mean, the nice thing for them is that they really get to know that particular area. Mm. Um, and that's how, like, that's really nice to then be the expert in that area. Um, but I've also noticed they've started to rotate quite a lot, um, which must also be very satisfying to be able to learn about a different area of the car or take it in turns to strap your driver in. You know, it's... Yeah. Nice to have that rotation. Um, and you actually work in mission control. I mean, you know, McLaren's famous mission control. I've been in there at the beginning of the season. I was lucky enough, um, one of the very few outsiders, if you like, to actually get a look in there. And it's um, incredibly high tech. Um, and, and of course, it's so crucial between the track and Woking, uh, the communication and, and just give us a bit of an overview or an insight into, into how all that sort of operates, how many channels there are between what you're, what you're listening to, how can you affect from mission control back in Woking to wherever the racetrack is and what's going on on that track at that time? Yeah, sure. So in general, um, mission control has a lot of data. Um we're getting huge amounts of data off the car all the time and they're not enough engineers at the track to analyze all the data. Um, you know, there are huge numbers of reasons for not having all the engineers at the track, mainly because there, there are always long-term projects that need to be done. We're not just working on each weekend as it comes, yeah. um, but also obviously the cost flying so many people around the world isn't cheap. So we need this team based at the factory who are definitely integrated with the team at the track. Um, everybody can talk to each other through the radio. So we all have a little intercom panels with lots of different radio channels on. And, and that's going to obviously to the circuit, but uh, so right even to the, um, um, you know, what we call, used to call the Pratt perch out the, you know, on the pit lane, the whole lot, that's, it's direct yeah. straight to there. There's no delay. It's pretty much instantaneous. Yeah, it's instantaneous. Like I could have a conversation with somebody over the radio in mission control, just like I'm having a conversation with you right now. Um, it's just like picking up the phone and dialing someone's number and giving them a call. Um, and it, I mean, it's really important because one of the decisions that's made in mission control is obviously when to pit, when to box. And that's a huge part of our strategy. And the strategy team are split between the pit wall and mission control. Okay. So, Mission, the guys in mission control are analyzing all the data using all their different software to look at when the most competitive opportunity comes along to pit and what the best strategic decision is. And they're feeding that back to the race engineers, the performance engineers, the strategy engineers at the track. And together, they're making a joint decision about what's best for both cars and, you know, making sure we get the best team result. Um Yes. And it, it must be, I mean, it, and to have all those lines of communication and all those um, open and all those people sort of wanting to have their input or needing to have their input, it, how, how do you keep that clear? Yeah, that's a very good question. There have been times in the past where there has been a lack of clarity because lots of people are talking on different channels. Um, I mean, this is quite critical. If we have for example, an incident in which both our cars are affected. So let's say it's a lap one incident. Both cars have to come in to pit because they've run over some debris. So they've both got punctures. We've had it before where both both our drivers want to pit and both their race engineers make the call to pit. But because they're talking at the same time, only one of them is heard. Right. 
so that has happened before and all that that means is we then look at that situation in depth afterwards we listen to the recording of the radio communication and we try and work out how to avoid that happening again in the future so this is another reason why I really wanted to be involved with the mission control work because this is basically root cause analysis which is what I'm doing every day in my day job and we try and set out a standard for how to communicate over the radio so that's how um, we make sure everything's clear now is everybody follows these guidelines and one of the key guidelines that I think we have that not all teams do is only one person is allowed to talk to the driver themselves. So on Lando's side, he's got Will talking to him. And then on Carlos's side, he's got Tom. And they're the only people who are allowed to talk to the driver. There are plenty of people talking to Will and Tom, um, <laughs> giving them information. But they have to be the filter between the chaos that goes on in terms of all the information, all the decisions that are having to be made and then giving clear details to the driver and and and, and yeah the, the best information for that scenario as well it's it's yeah. it's a lot for them to to take on isn't it and to as you say filter through and, and and get the relevant and the best outcome for the team and the driver yeah so i spent some time volunteering with the strategy group when i first joined and it was just because i really wanted to be involved on race weekends so i just asked if there was anything I could do and one of the things was listening to other teams radio so we can't only hear our radio we can hear other teams oh radio. really so you're you're you're, yeah. you're eavesdropping and I suppose they'd be doing the same everybody's eavesdropping on everybody <laughs> um, but it's start- but it's it's just the, the the communication between the driver and the engineer it's obviously not what's going yes. on between uh, mission control and the pit wall yeah it's only driver radios yeah um, so you will have heard you know like Red Bull they allow other people to talk to their drivers as well you would have heard on tv sometimes you hear christian horner coming on the radio same at mercedes sometimes you hear different people coming on just to say congratulations um, at the end of the race so you 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 can tell that they've got different sort of standards for how to communicate over the radio Um, and yeah we we can listen in to their drivers radios you have to learn different sort of code words for maybe they've got a a secret word for when they want to come into pit Um, so you you start to pick these things up and I think the most important lesson I learned from my time with the strategy group was working out what information is critical because obviously if you just feed everything in you're passing on that sort of spam yeah yeah it's just confusion yes it's a lot of confusion um and so you have to be that you have to be there to digest everything work out what's critical and pass that on um, and I think that's a quite an important skill in any job. So it's it's a good experience to have to have to learn to do it very quickly. Um, and because uh, you uh, do go out to a fair amount of races, or you certainly did last year, not as many this year. Do you, do you miss going to the track, or you're happy to do a bit of both, or you prefer to stay back in the UK? So we were always doing a bit of both because there were so many of us in the reliability group, it would have been unfair to send only one person. Um, So we would sort of split the season into three, take it in turns to go out. Um, And I loved it. I really, really miss it this year. Um, Obviously, I don't know what it's like being at the track this year because they can't go out in the evenings they're normally stuck in the hotel <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's not going to be anywhere near as social as what we're used to is it it's no it's definitely not as social you can't exactly although I've noticed you know after a race if it's a good result everybody's hugging anyway there's like yeah. no change there um but I think 
it's a very different experience this year. You know, they're having to uh, wear masks all the time. And people might have heard in the news about the struggles that NHS workers have wearing masks all the time. It's the same for, for all the engineers, you know, and the mechanics. They're wearing their masks all the time. It's a bit sort of claustrophobic, I suppose. And this season has been very different to most seasons in terms of the summer break got moved to when it suited us for for COVID. Um, So when we weren't allowed to travel anyway. So they've not really had a break. They've been a lot of triple headers. And and, and that's the other thing is that, I mean, uh, you know, you... F1, and particularly if you're going out as an engineer and regularly to the circuit or, or, or a mechanic, you have to get used to living and, and sort of seeing the same people all the time. And that's even more so now because they're pretty much in their own bubble. So they just don't get to mix outside their circles. It makes it even harder. Yeah. I mean, I think what's nice is the fact that they are seeing people. I think there are lots of people in this pandemic who either they are now working from home and there's nobody at home with them, so they're isolated that way, or I'm going into the office every day and there are not very many people in the office, so I'm isolated that way. So the one thing that I think is nice is there's still a team environment. Mm. Obviously, it might mean that tensions run a bit higher because you just get fed up of some people, Mm. but I think normally they're just so like focused on what they're doing that it's okay. but yeah, you're, you're completely right. I have no idea if I would enjoy this season as much <laughs> as previous seasons. Um, but I do definitely miss that variety in terms of what I'm looking at and what I'm doing and the different challenges that each circuit brings. So when I'm there in a reliability role, we'll have different problems at each circuit. We might have front wing curbing issues at one place and then we might have suspension loading issues at another place. So it's always nice to have a bit of a different challenge to look at. Yeah, it's uh, been a strange one, and I know what you mean as far as the travel. Just so used to traveling, sort of every week. Or I mean, I didn't go to every race either, but it's just been a very strange thing to not head out to the airport and jump on a plane and 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 have that week away and the um, camaraderie and team spirit yeah. that goes on. You know, it's an odd thing, isn't it? Yeah, and obviously the guys aren't coming into the factory between races either. Mm. So normally. I would, you know, at least see them around to say hello. Even if I weren't at the track, they'd be in if they had a a weekend off. They would come in to do some work at the factory and, you know, you at least get to say hello to people. But this year, there's just none of that. Yeah, it's uh, and hopefully that's going to change pretty soon because, um, well, you know, let's hope to keep the fingers crossed that this vaccine is going to be happening, um, you know, sooner rather than later and we can all get back to... uh, to what is a normal life but um and and of course we can then get back out to the circuit as well i'm pretty sure you're the same it's uh, something i really miss matilda look thank you very much for your time you've got uh, one of the most interesting jobs particularly in mission control you are no doubt the envy of quite a lot of people and uh, thank you very much for coming on and talking to us oh, thank you for having me it was really great <laughs> So that's the Pitbox podcast for another week. Uh, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on Spotify, on Apple iTunes, all that sort of stuff. Give us a like, give us a recommendation, and a subscribe as well. This weekend, Turkey awaits with all the trimmings. Uh, the battle in the midfield is the most exciting part about it. And that midfield has now been joined, I think, by Ferrari, at least Charles Leclerc, but also the Alpha Tories. I think they're going to be pretty quick here this weekend particularly after the performance they put in at Imola. If you'd like to be on the Pitbox Podcast, you'd like to offer your opinion, get in touch on Twitter or on Insta at Pitbox Podcast or at Adoree Media. We'd love to have you on. That's how we got involved with Wayne and James, just people who wanted to talk about F1. So uh, do it. 
Look forward to catching up with you next week on the Pitbox Podcast.